Don Basham speaking on True and False Prophets. Message number two entitled, Why God's Ministers Fall. Yesterday, our first message was entitled, Beware of False Prophets, and we used as our text the uh, warning that Jesus gave in Matthew 7 that we were to bear to beware of false prophets who come to us in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravening wolves. And we spent some time to describe a classic case of a false prophet in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 22 and 24, and it's the story of Balaam. Uh, many people haven't understood, I found out since I started teaching on this and wrote the book, many people have not understood what makes a man a true or false prophet or apostle or minister or uh, elder or teacher. Uh, we have mistakenly assumed or naively assumed the fact that if a man's a false prophet, it means he teaches stuff that isn't true. And that's only one minor aspect, scripturally, of what constitutes a false minister or false prophet. Uh, and as we tried to point out clearly yesterday, the, the determining factor as to whether or not a man is a true or false prophet is not that's not to be determined by his message. It's not to be determined by the miracles in his ministry. Uh, whether or not a man is a true or false prophet is dependent upon his moral character. And Jesus made this plain, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. By their fruit you shall know them, not by their gifts. And uh, we pointed to this classic example in the Old Testament about Balaam. Balaam was a prophet of God who was blessed and empowered by God. And when the children of Israel were coming into the kingdom of Moab, Balak, the king of Moab, sought after Balaam, uh, wanted to employ him to go out and curse the nation of Israel because uh, Israel had been defeating all of Moab's and all of Balak's friends and other nations and, and the Moabites, and Balak were afraid their nation was going to be destroyed by these, uh, this Israelite nation, these, uh, this wandering group of uh, Israelites. This was during their sojournings in the wilderness in the 40 years. And uh, Balak knew that Balaam was a prophet of God. And he said, you come and curse these people for me because I have noticed that whom you curse, whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. So there's no question that Balaam was moving in divine power and he's recognized as a prophet of God. And so the king of Moab sends men there with a lot of money to try to hire Balaam. And Balaam, the scriptures make plain, although he's a prophet of God, is a greedy man and an ambitious man. And he desperately wants to get into to Balak's employ. So he tells these men, you go aside and wait. I'll go and talk to God and see what he says. And so Balaam goes and talks to God. And God says, you'll not curse Israel, for they're my people. And you'll bless them. They're blessed, and you will not curse them. And you cannot go. And so Balaam's disappointed. He goes back to the princes of Moab, and he says, I'm sorry, I can't go. And so the princes go back to the king, and they said, we can't get Balaam. Uh, because uh, God says he can't go. And the king says, well, let's up the ante. Let's offer him more money. Let's offer him a better job. We'll make him a prime minister, a spiritual prime minister in Moab. So he sent his emissaries back to Balaam to plead with him again, come on and come to work for me and curse Israel. And Balaam knew that God had already spoken and said no. Nevertheless, because he was driven by his gain and by his greed, he told the men, all right, you stay and I'll go talk to God again and see if maybe he's changed his mind. And so, because Balaam persists and nags God and the hounds God about it, finally God says, all right, you can go, but you'll say only what I tell you to say. And so Balaam then rushes out and tells the men, well, let's go, and he's going to go back and, 
and uh, uh, work for Balaam. And then you recall the story of how Balaam's riding his donkey and God is mad because he's going and he sends an angel to withstand him and to stand in his way. And many people don't understand. They say, well, why? Uh, if God allowed him to go the second time, why then was God mad at him? Because that angel stood in his way and, was, and said later he was going to kill him. Balaam couldn't see the angel. His donkey saw it. And three times, finally, the donkey laid down and Balaam was going to kill the donkey. And God miraculously opened the donkey's mouth and he spoke and said, what do you want to kill me for? I've been your uh, faithful animal all this time. And then God opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel. And the, the angel said, if it hadn't been for that donkey, I'd have killed you. And then Balaam feigns innocence. He said, well, I didn't know I had displeased God, but if I really displeased God, then, of course, I'll go back. But what many people say, well, why was God mad if he allowed Balaam to go the second time? The point is this. God did not will Balaam to go. God's will was that Balaam not go. But Balaam persisted. And so it is a true fact of the nature of God is that God will let us have our own way. God will acquiesce to our wishes and our desires. And the problem many of us have is that we mistake God's acquiescence for God's approval. And it is not the same. And so what happened was that Balaam, because he was driven by his own greed and by his own ambition, he went ahead and tried to work for Balak. But every time he opened his mouth, God, by the Holy Spirit, poured true prophecy through Balaam and he would end up blessing Israel instead of cursing it. Three times this happened. He would go and bless Israel. And Balak said, well, that's not what I want you to do. I want you to curse Israel. Come over here and take a look at them from another point of view, and then maybe you can curse them. And so Balaam would go over there. He'd get under the anointing of the Spirit. He'd open his mouth to, to prophesy, and blessing would come forth. And even the third time when he prophesied, he was so much in the Spirit that he even prophesied the coming of the Messiah. Every word that Balaam spoke by the mouth of God uh, every, or every word that God spoke by the mouth of Balaam was a true prophetic word. Balaam was a, a, a real prophet of God. Nevertheless, he was rebellious and greedy and self-serving and ambitious. And so Balak finally says, well, if you're not going to curse Israel, you just go home. You can't work for me. But Balaam, the, we read in the Bible later on how in the next chapter in Numbers 25, how Moses says how a great plague fell on the Israelites and 24,000 of them were killed. And then a little later over in Numbers 31, we read why that happened. It was because Israel hearkened to the counsel of Balaam the prophet. And Balaam encouraged them to, to become idol worships, to join them, idol worshipers, to join themselves with the Baal gods of the, of, the, uh, uh, of the heathen nation that they were in and also to commit immorality. And because of that, God sent a plague and 24,000 Israelites were slain and later Balaam himself was slain in the war between... Uh, uh, between that nation and the Israelites. And then over in the New Testament, we are told repeatedly how Balaam was a prophet of God, uh, but it was a false prophet because he sought the wages of unrighteousness. And yet by examining Balaam's ministry, we see that everything he did was by the power of God. That is, so far as his prophecy was concerned, so far as his cursing and blessing. So Balaam is a classic case of a false prophet. A man who was a prophet and who was used of God, but nevertheless, because he was an immoral man and loved the wages of unrighteousness, was labeled in the New Testament, both in, the, in, the, uh, in Jude and in Second Peter and in Revelation, all he is labeled as a false prophet. And then we looked yesterday in that session about how this is a problem in the New, was a problem in the New Testament, in the church, and how Paul, Jesus, warned against false prophets and then how Paul warned against false apostles and how Peter warned against false teachers and how Paul warned against false elders. 
that it was the same problem in back in the church we have today. And we gave some illustrations yesterday about false prophets today. I gave a couple of rather uh, grisly or, or unpleasant illustrations of men of God in ministry today who are, or are gifted of God and performing miracles by the power of God, but who are immoral and dishonest and uh, uh, preying upon helpless women in the church and uh, engaging in immorality and seducing Christian women and the rest of it. We will not repeat those things today. But it's a modern problem. And one of the reasons we said it exists is because groups like this, because they know a man can work miracles, will invite that man into minister even though his home life's on the skids. And the point we were making repeatedly is that the basis for judging whether or not a man is a true or false prophet, we don't look at the miracles in his ministry, we look at his character. Jesus said, by their fruits, not by their gifts, you shall know them. All right, do we want to move on in that vein today, and we're going to talk some more about, are going to move on and, and discuss how and why these things exist today. Why is the church in such a, a position that we have these false ministers? And, and the problem is, is far greater than the average Christian realizes. There's an increasing number of them, and the devil is increasingly picking good men of God off. They're falling into Satan's snare. They're becoming false prophets. We're going to uh, give a couple of hypothetical examples of it today. They're included in, in the book, True and False Prophets. But I want to talk first about five reasons why we've been so gullible and why we have failed to understand the thing I'm talking about. And they're all based in Scripture. The first one's in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And this is that well-known quote of Paul where he says, By grace you are saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, and not because of works, lest any man should boast. I think I've quoted it right, yeah. All right, now we all know when it comes to our salvation, at least we should know, that it has absolutely nothing whatever to do with our own merit. We are saved by grace through faith. Not a one of us here, if we get into heaven, are going to get in because we're good. We get in because Christ was good and he loved us and he died for us. Now, we know that instinctively if we've been born again and we've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, it's been, for many of us, when we were small children, this fallacy of salvation by works was drilled into us in our Sunday school by eager, well-meaning, but scripturally ignorant teachers. I grew up in a Southern Baptist Sunday school in Texas years ago, and I used to get this. And, and many good Sunday school teachers will teach us when, you know, essentially the fallacy is this. We're told when we're small, sometimes by parents and by teachers, be good little boys and girls, and when you die, you'll go to heaven. Isn't that what you hear people say to the children? That's what we were taught when we were children. You be a good little boy, and when you die, you'll go to heaven and be with Jesus. You be a bad little boy, you die, you'll go to hell. Now, we know, obviously, that that is childish and immature and highly unscriptural. It's not on the basis of our being good. We don't earn it. And then we run into the same fallacy when it comes to the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I've heard good Pentecostal ministers of God tell a person the reason he hadn't gotten the baptism in the Holy Ghost was because he wasn't good enough. He hadn't cleaned his life up. Well, let me tell you something. If you could get good enough to deserve the Holy Ghost, you wouldn't need it. If you could get good enough on your own. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to, to clean up our lives. And the baptism in the Holy Spirit is not given because as a merit badge for service. I've heard ministers say, oh, the Holy Ghost won't come into an unclean vessel. Oh, yes, he will. He doesn't have any other kind to come into. <laughs> now, once he comes in, he'll clean it up, begin to. And some of the things before we were baptized in the Holy Spirit, we thought were 
fairly okay or respectable, suddenly we see or grieve the Spirit of God. But it's the same kind of fallacy over again. What was be good little boys and girls and you'll go to heaven becomes be good little boys and girls and you'll get the baptism. And what I'm saying is it's wrong. It's fallacious and it's in error. And exactly the same thing is true about uh, powerful ministries. We have allowed this error or this uh, uh, deception to color our opinion of men of God who are gifted in ministry. And what we say is when we say a man, see a man cast out demons or we see a man heal the sick or come forth with a beautiful prophecy or give a word of knowledge or something and it's an obvious demonstration of the power of God. And I've had people say that to me. They say, oh, you must be a wonderful man of God to be able to do that. Pardon my putting it so bluntly, but that's a bunch of bunk. It has nothing whatever to do with my righteousness or my holiness. It has to do with the fact that God uses me in ministry. But it's not because of works, you see. But we see a man uh, in powerful ministry and we look at those miracles and we say, well, he must have become so mature that God has decided he can trust him with that power. And we have mistakenly assumed that a man who has a powerful ministry has reached that stage where he's won most of the victories in his own life and where he's reached moral maturity and where uh, he's beyond temptation and, and he can be safely trusted with the ministry God gives. That's not true. It is a privilege to minister the gifts of the Spirit of God. It's a very great privilege. But let me tell you something else. It is also a very great peril. Jesus said, him to whom much is given, to whom much is given, of him shall much be required. So part of the problem is we have been, we see these ministries that are powerful and we have mistakenly assumed that the man who has the ministry is a super saint and that he's already conquered the weaknesses of the flesh. And that's wrong. The man of God, no matter how powerful his ministry is, puts on his pants one leg at a time, just like any other Joe Blow Christian. So don't continue in that false assumption if you had it. Those ministries aren't given on that basis. All right, a second point we find in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Uh, it's this, we have mistakenly felt that spiritual gifts signify the endorsement of God. We've assumed this is related to the first one, but we're stating it another way. We have mistakenly uh, felt that, that the, the giving of spiritual gifts signify the endorsement of God. We have misunderstood the relationship of gifts and fruits. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 is where Paul says uh, we have this, I think it is, where he says we have this treasure in earthen vessels to prove the excellency of the powers of God and not of us. Well, just let me check to make sure. Yeah. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. What Paul is saying is that the miracles and the power of God always flow through imperfect human vessels, earthen vessels. And I'll tell you, the truth is, in most cases, the vessels are fairly earthy. That means they're just plain old human. But we have mistaken the character are the nature of gifts in relationship to the nature of the fruits of the Spirit. We have assumed that when God gives gifts, that somehow this has something to do with the man's character, and it doesn't. We need to understand the delineation between the two. What is the, the key is in the understanding of what constitutes a gift and what constitutes a fruit. 
A gift by the very nature of the word, by the very definition of the word, a gift is something that cannot be earned. And a gift does not in any way signify anything at all about the one to whom it's given. Uh, suppose I wanted to give Jimmy Moore $1,000. Uh, that'd be a miracle, all right. <laughs> but all right, let's use that as an assumption that I'm going to give Jim, that I give Jimmy Moore a thousand dollars. Now, what does that say about Jimmy Moore? It says absolutely nothing about Jimmy. It doesn't say whether he's tall or short, big or small, lean or fat, wise or foolish, good or bad, black or white. It says absolutely nothing and signifies absolutely nothing about the person of Jimmy Moore, except that I have chosen to give him a gift that he is the recipient of my gift. The gift says nothing about the one who receives it, but it says a great deal about the one who gives it. That $1,000 would say something about me and my character, my financial power, my generosity, my worth, because it would reflect on my nature and upon my character and upon my power and my influence. But it says nothing about Jimmy except that I want to give it to him. Now, that's the way it is with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They say... They say nothing about the character of a man. They reflect the power of God. And so when a man is ministering the gifts of the Holy Spirit, those are no signification or endorsement of his character. They are simply a representation of the love and of the power of God who wants to bless his people. And as Paul says, we have this treasure this heavenly treasure, the power and the gifts of God, we have this in earthen vessels. And that we're to remember that the excellency of the power is of God and not of us. And all over this country, good Christian people like you have assumed that spiritual gifts are given like little merit badges for good behavior when they're not. So we don't look to the gifts, we look to the fruit. Now what about the nine fruit of the Spirit? Paul lists over in Galatians 5, love, patience, love, peace, patience, faith, kindness, goodness, meekness, and those others. Love, joy, peace, and so forth. Nine of them. The fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, in contrast to the gifts, the fruit can be more clearly defined uh, as traits developing in Christian character. Now, they have the grace of God behind them, and in one sense they're miraculous in that they are dispensations of God's grace. It's not my love nor my uh, joy, nor my peace, nor my patience, nor my kindness. It's what God gives by his grace. Nevertheless, it works in my character. And so the fruit, by the very nature of the word, again, signifies a, uh, a process of growth. The gifts are given instantly and full-blown. A gift of healing can come forth as an instant miracle. A gift of a word of knowledge or a revelation from God can come forth instantly, and it's a little bit of the divine power of God manifested through some human vessel to meet some human need. While the fruit of the Spirit are not miraculous in that sense, they're like traits growing in character and they take time to produce. By the very nature of the word fruit, definition of the word fruit, it indicates a time process. Uh, in Florida, in, in my side yard, in my home, I have two lime trees and there's something going on in them lime trees all the time. I mean, ever since we've lived down there for six years. Uh, I can go out there and any time of the year, there's blossoms and there's little tiny hard buds of fruit and then a little bigger fruit and some ripe limes on there. There are certain periods of the year when they grow more than others, but I cannot recall a time when I couldn't go pick a lime off that tree. Now, whether or not it's the blossom with just a little, what is it they call it, the stamen in the center of the blossom, and then those petals fall off and there's a little tiny thing just like a matchstick 
head, real dark green, and then the fruit will get a little bigger, about the size of my little finger, and when it gets mature, a bright yellow green, it's about the size of so big around, and it'll, if I just touch it, it'll fall off in my hand. But whether or not it's just the tiny little bud or whether or not it's that ripe fruit ready to fall to the ground, at every stage of the game, it's fruit. But it takes a process of growth to bring it to maturity. So it's these nine fruit of the Spirit that, that signify a person's character. And character, not gifts, is the endorsement of ministry. So when we look to see whether or not a man is a true or false prophet, we're not to look to the miracles who are God's. We're to thank God for those, but we're to check his character. And we noticed yesterday how when Peter was talking about false prophets and Paul was talking about false apostles and listing the characteristics of these, how only a little bit of what they were doing had to do with what they taught, and most of the criticisms and most of the points about them had to do with the way they lived. They were immoral men. So a second reason why we have not understood the problem and why it's crept up on us is because we have mistakenly assumed that the gifts are an endorsement of a man's character and thus his ministry, and they're not. It's fruit that reveals a man's character. Jesus said, by their fruit you shall know them. A third point, we have not understood, and the lack of understanding of this point has been uh, really dangerous for us. Romans eleven twenty nine. Paul says, he's talking, been talking about uh, the nation of Israel and about how God's chosen them is not going to cast them off even because of their disobedience. But then he says an interesting thing in verse 29, For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Now the RSV says it even more clearly, For the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. Now hear me carefully. What Paul is saying is God chooses to give spiritual gifts and he does not take them back. The word here for spiritual gifts is the word charismata, which is the same gift word Paul uses other places when he's talking about the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. Paul says God, uh, that God, that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That means God gives them and doesn't call them back. And here we have had such a misunderstanding of the nature of God that it's, uh, it's almost impossible to ever overestimate the damage it's done. You may say, well, now that doesn't make sense. If I were God, I wouldn't do that. We say, if I were God and I gave man a miraculous ministry and then he got out of line, I'd take the ministry back. I'd show him. The minute he steps out of line, off comes the anointing, off comes the ministry. Now, I would say that this is one of the biggest misconceptions that exists in the body of Christ today. It is not true that God automatically jerks the anointing or the ministry off a man because he falls into sin. In fact, it's just the opposite, really. I mean, God does not do that. And let me, it's going to take some time to develop this, but let me back up and say it this way. You and I are not entitled to unscriptural opinions about how God ought to work. But many of us have made assumptions about what we think God should do that have no basis in Scripture whatever, and that's one of them. To say that God will give a gift and bless a man as long as he's behaving and God will lift the blessing when he stops behaving. Now, that may sound what's sensible to you and that may be the way you would do it if you were God. But you are not God. And that is not the way God does it. Paul says, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. 
And the choice is God's divine choice, and he decides whom he's going to bless, and it's his ultimate divine purpose to do it, and he'll bless. And he'll continue to bless and bless and bless, even though the man may get increasingly into rebellion. There's no way in just an hour or so we could really develop all this the way it needs to be developed. But understand that God has a purpose in bestowing blessings. And it's not always that it indicates God's approval. If there's ever something we need to realize today, it's this, is that the blessing of God does not necessarily signify God's approval. God blesses many things he does not approve of. Neither is God's blessing a sign that the one who's blessed is in God's will. God blesses many things he does not initiate. If God blessed only those things that were fully in his will and God blessed only those things that he himself initiated, 95% of what goes on in the body of Christ today would have no blessing upon it because very little of what we do is centrally and fully and completely in the will of God. Most of the time we make our blessings and our plan we make our plans and our uh, programs and so forth and then we ask God to bless them. They're human of a human origin, they're of human intent, and they're weak and incorrect and improper in their procedures, and yet God in his abundant mercy will bless it because he'll answer prayer and because he wants to meet our needs. But that doesn't mean that it's in divine order. God blesses many things he does not approve or, uh, or that he's not initiated. I see I'm shaking some of you up a bit. This sounds almost like strange teaching. Well, we need to understand that it's scripture. Let's look at some scriptures about the sovereignty of God in this regard. God chooses to bless. God gives his gifts and calling, and he doesn't give them back. Jesus said to the 12 disciples, you did not choose me, I have chosen you. It was divine choice that caused the blessing of God to fall upon those 12 disciples, to make them his disciples. And Jesus chose those 12, and he commissioned them to go out and preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, and proclaim the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, I did not, you did not choose me, I chose you, and I send you out to do those things. And then he adds a very strange thing, and one of you is a devil. And who among the twelve went out to preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons, and raise the dead? Judas Iscariot, who was a thief and a murderer from the beginning. Now, I'm not trying to explain this. It's a mystery to me. All I'm saying is that God's divine choice must stand without question. And so what I'm, the, the point I was originally started out to make was this. We are not entitled to unscriptural opinions about what God might or might not do. Our responsibility as Christians is to read and to study the word of God and see what God does and then bring our lives into conformity to it. It does not make sense, humanly speaking, for God to do some of the things he does. But God says, my ways aren't your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, as high as the heaven is above the earth, so my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So Paul says, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. All right, now, if that's true, something else is also true. Well, let's put it this way. If it were true, if the other thing were true, if the gifts of God and the ministries of God were given as a result of our good behavior and were given because we'd earned the right to them, if the gifts and calling of God were given because we're good, then understandably they'd be taken away because we, when we're bad. But that's not the basis on which they're given. It's because God chooses to give them and does not call them back 
that even when a man falls into sin and into immorality, because he's God's divine choice, God will continue to pour the miracles and the blessing through that man's ministry in order that people's needs may be met, even though the man's personal life's going down the drain. Now, I freely recognize this sounds strange, but I tell you, it's scriptural. And I'll say it again. It's not our place to decide how God ought to act. Our place is to understand or to see what God does and to accept it. Even though we may in the natural want to disagree, shall the prophet says, shall the potter say to the, shall the clay say to the potter, why hast thou made me thus? But that's what we want to do. We want to argue with God. And I'll say it again. Paul says it very clearly. The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. So this is why I said a while ago that it's a, while it's a privilege to minister the gifts of God, it's also a very great peril. The higher a man gets in ministry, the more the devil tries to pick him off. And the more powerful a man gets in ministry, the greater the temptation to immorality or to dishonesty or to many other things. I speak out of experience in this regard. I, every pastor, because he deals with people's problems and deals often with intimate relationships, Every pastor is subject to certain temptations. He troubles, counsels young women. He counsels troubled young women. And there are temptations because he delves deeply into people's lives. There is always, he's subject to a greater temptation or to greater opportunity for immorality and for other kinds of dishonesty than the average man is, just by very nature of the fact that he's a minister to people. And I was a pastor for about 15 years, but I'll tell you, in the last six years, in the kind of ministry I'm in now, all of the temptations that I had as a pastor are tremendously increased and heightened because of the kind of ministry I'm in now, traveling all over the world, uh, establish some kind of reputation as authority in the charismatic movement, author of books, and uh, all this sort of thing. And so people begin to, to put a kind of adulation or put a kind of, of uh, aura around you like you're some sort of super saint. And you have more opportunity, if you wanted to take advantage of it, there'd be more opportunity to, to get involved in some sort of immorality. And this is what happens to many a man, a man who can't stand this. He's away from home, away from his family, under temptation, uh, and he's a thousand miles away. Who will ever know if he becomes indiscreet? Or he's, many men who are in ministries like mine begin to handle considerable sums of money, not that are just given to our own ministries, but money's given to us to pass on to other ministries. We... Uh, it's not the same as when you just have a, a paycheck that comes every two weeks from a church treasurer or, a, or if you have an ordinary secular job when your paycheck comes just every two weeks and it's a given amount. The very fact that we move in circles where there's an awful lot of money uh, being turned loose for God's work, inevitably there are great temptations involved in that. Well, okay, now we listed three of the things. The first was we misunderstood the meaning of God's grace. The second, we misunderstood gifts and fruit. The third is we haven't understood that God gives a ministry and he doesn't call it back. A fourth point, we fail to distinguish between a man and his ministry. John 5, Jesus makes a statement, verse 19 and 30. Uh, about the fact that he can't take credit for what it's doing, that doing but it's the Father. Verse 19, then Jesus answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. And then over in verse 30, he says of the same thing, I of myself, mine own self, can do nothing. So what Jesus is saying is to people, 
and he's giving a terrific example of how we ought to be. He says, don't give me the credit. It's my father in me that doeth the work. In fact, when somebody came to him and said, uh, good master, the rich young ruler came to him and said, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Before Jesus answered him, he said, why callest thou me good? There's no one good but God. So Jesus very carefully gave credit to God the Father. And we need to understand this when we are, it's all related to what we've already been saying, that the miraculous ministry that comes through a man is the man's, is God's ministry. And God deals with his ministry one way and he deals with man another way. And we need to understand this, that when we see a ministry in operation, we need to give all the credit to God and to recognize that this is God's sovereign act to meet the needs of God's own people. God doesn't give a man a powerful ministry to exalt that man. He gives man a powerful ministry that that man may minister to God's people and that, that those people's needs may be met. And remember that this is God's primary concern. But God in his ultimate wisdom and plan has arranged that his blessings flow through human channels. But we tend to mix up the channel with the source. We tend to give a man credit for what God is doing. And see, I've had people tell me, you know, you, you must be a wonderful man of God to be able to do those. No, it's the power of God. But let me tell you, when constantly you are bombarded with that kind of praise, it's very difficult not to have a little of it seep through. It's very intoxicating kind of stuff. Uh, to come into a community and be treated like you're some sort of super saint and some sort of extra special somebody. Thank God most of us have wives who know how to keep us in our place. <laughs> I go home after having had a powerful week somewhere and come home, God's man of faith and power. My mom says, hi, honey, take out the garbage. You know, well, and we need that kind of thing, you see. Bob Mumford has a lot to say about this, about how Judy punctures his balloon every once in a while when he comes home as God's man of faith and power. Uh, he gives one illustration when they were about his own human weakness and they were driving in traffic somewhere. Bob had been expounding about the great things of God and all this and some careless woman driver zipped in in front of him. Nearly, He had to slam on the brakes. He nearly had a wreck and everything else. And he sort of gave her a blast of his opinion, you know, about being a dumb fool driver and all this sort of thing and lost his temper and Judy looked at him real sweetly and said, why don't you invite her to one of your meetings? <laughs> well, we need to distinguish between the man and the ministry. The ministry is God's, and God says, my word shall not return unto me void, but shall accomplish the thing whereunto I sent it. Now, the word of God comes through a human mouthpiece, but God's primary concern is to bless his word and to bless his promise. And he may continue to pour that word through a mouthpiece like he did Balaam. Even though Balaam himself was an unrighteous man and a greedy man and an immoral man and ultimately gave additional counsel besides what God gave him that got the Israel so much in Dutch that 24,000 of them were slain. But nevertheless, God was determined to protect the nation of Israel from being cursed and he would not let Balaam curse it. He would only let Balaam bless it. So God was protecting and performing his word there even through an imperfect human vessel. So the ministry is God's. The man is something apart and different. And God's dealing with his ministry is, God's, is different from God's dealing with the man. 
The man who has a ministry has to be dealt with by God the same as any other man or woman is dealt with. And the fact that he has a special ministry does not entitle him to special treatment. And if we knew that, we would cease becoming so enamored of the miracles that we see. You see, part of our problem is in the charismatic community is we're miracle happy. We're preoccupied with signs and wonders. We'll drive 200 miles to see somebody cast out a demon or lengthen a leg. Now, those are God's miracles, and I say again, thank God for them. That's supposed to be what happens. We're supposed to have a kind of New Testament Christianity where the signs and wonders of God follow the preaching of the gospel. But we get so enamored of that sort of thing that we fail to be discerning about the nature of sometimes or the character of the man who's performing the miracles. All right, a final point. Uh, and this, we're giving these five points about why we have this problem, why we, about our misunderstandings. The fifth one is that we misunderstood the significance of God's delayed judgment. Psalm 106, let's read a couple of verses in that, and then also we're going to read a parable in Luke 20. Psalm 106, verses... Uh, I'm sorry, it's Psalm 103. Verses 8 and 9. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. So it's the nature of God to be forgiving and forbearing. And many a time that in, what we do is we trespass on God's grace because we're doing things that we shouldn't. Nevertheless, God does not instantly rebuke us or instantly uh, take action. He will eventually. But God is slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. But then the scripture says, He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. A dead time of judgment eventually is to come. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heaven is, as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. So by God's nature, he's not indulgent, but he's forbearing. And so he will postpone judgment. Now, there's a number of reasons for that. Part of it is because he's merciful. And there's another reason, and that is, that, and many people have not understood this, is that God postpones his judgment in order that the evil in us may be allowed fully to surface. You see, if the very moment I stepped out of line, God snatched my ministry away, then what my real intent would be like or what my greatest intent of heart would be like would never fully be revealed. The evil that's latent there, the rebellion that's latent there would never have a chance to express itself. And so one of the purposes of God in our lives is to bring all things like that to the surface. So God will often delay what he's doing, uh, delay his judgment simply to see to it that our true nature may be revealed. Look with me over in chapter, in the 20th chapter of Luke and we're going to... Uh, Read a parable there of Jesus's. Beginning with verse 9, then he began to speak to, to the people this parable. Please stop your machine at this point and turn the tape over. Read a parable there of Jesus's. 
beginning with verse 9, then he began to speak to, to the people this parable, a certain man planted a vineyard and let it forth to husbandmen and went into a far country for a long time. And at the season he sent a servant to the husbandmen that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. But the husbandman beat him and sent him away empty. And again he sent another servant, and they beat him also and entreated him shamefully, and he sent him away empty. Again he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be that they will reverence him when they see him. But when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Where, what therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He shall come and destroy these husbandmen, and shall give the vineyards to others. And when they heard it, they said, God forbid. Now here's an example of God's delayed justice. And the, the immediate uh, application of it, of course, is clear and true. He's talking about how the children of Israel stoned the prophets, and when, Jesus, when the Son of Man came, he was going to be killed too. Jesus is forecasting his own death here. But there's a deeper, there's another significant thing about it, and that is that uh, in light of what we're teaching about false ministers, uh, these husbandmen are, are duly appointed men of God. They've been entrusted by, uh, by the uh, husbandman who represents God. They've been entrusted by him to look after his vineyard. So it's the ministers of God who've been entrusted by God to look after God's people. And the picture we have in this parable is that these ministers, while they are performing their ministries, uh, even though God warns them that what they're doing wrong, they continue to perform their ministry while they're becoming more and more evil. So evil, in fact, eventually, of course, that they killed Jesus uh, when he came. But the point is here, it, one of the things we see described is the infinite patience of God, the forbearance of God. He sends one servant to warn. He sends another servant to warn. Finally, because he is so loved and concerned about these people, he says, I'll send my own son. Surely they'll listen to him. But instead they didn't. They even killed him. So the end result is that eventually they themselves will be destroyed, but not until God has shown great forbearance. And it's wrong for us to assume that because we get away with something that eventually we'll not have to answer for it. And a part of the deception that falls upon men uh, in powerful ministries who, who begin to, to fall into sin and to immorality, to dishonesty and deception, a part of that deception is that they think they're sort of special cases and that somehow they will not have to answer for God's judgment. And so, of course, their deception then becomes multiplied. Okay, now I want to talk a little about why God's ministers fall. Uh, in the book True and False Prophets, I give two fictitious examples, and I want to just rehearse them for you briefly, uh, as I, best I can from my own memory. One we've named John Trueheart, who is a young minister, and essentially Trueheart's story, as we related in the, scripture, in the book, is this. He's a fine, John Trueheart's a fine young minister who graduates with honors from seminary, baptized in the Holy Ghost, has a lovely young wife and two lovely small children, goes out and takes a pastorate, small pastorate, and completely sold out to the Lord, wants to really turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. And he's a dedicated, selfless, hardworking young preacher. And because he's baptized in the Holy Spirit and moving in the power of the Spirit, his church begins to grow, doubles in size in a couple of years. And he begins to have a powerful healing ministry in the healing services in his church. So things are prospering and he's getting along pretty good, except he's really ambitious. He wants to serve God powerfully. He wants a great big ministry, which uh, in itself is not necessarily evil. I mean, to really want to do more and more for God. 
There's nothing wrong with zeal except when it's not accompanied by some other things that temper it. Uh, so this young man was zealous for God and he wanted to serve God in a great way. So what happens is a man comes, a publisher comes by, attends one of his healing services and becomes aware of his healing ministry and writes a book. A writer writes a book about his ministry and it gets published and becomes a national bestseller. And immediately this young man is vaulted into a nationwide healing ministry and he's effective in it. He travels all across the country. But what happens is in this newfound ministry, he's away from home a long time at a time from his wife and his two little girls and they, his wife begins to get very unhappy and uh, she's not managing the house very well and the bills begin to pile up and uh, those bills reveal something that nobody else knew about that family. Understand this, that every Christian family has certain problems. Every minister and his family have certain areas where they have more difficulty in making the proper adjustment and managing things the way they should. Every family has problems. Well, it was a financial problem in this family. John had married a young girl from very wealthy parents and she'd been spoiled and always had everything she wanted. They got deeply in debt in seminary because they didn't know how to, to budget their, their money that they had. And they left seminary in debt and they hadn't been able to pay off their debts in his little pastorate. He gets into this big ministry and she's disgruntled and upset and lonesome and blue and having to take care of the two little kids at home while he's out being God's man of faith and power. And to show her her discontent, she begins to run up bills, charge things all over the place. John has to come home uh, and try to handle this situation. His wife is surly and uncommunicative, and he feels that the devil's trying to destroy the new ministry he's given her, and he gives her, given him, he gives her a lecture and, and goes off and ministers again. Now, he has some elders in his church and other people in the community that know his home is not in proper order, and they say, John, you ought to stay home more and take care of your family. But John feels he's called to this nationwide ministry, that this is God's calling and the devil's not going to rob him of it, so off he goes. And the bills continue to pile up and a great crisis comes at home where he's facing bankruptcy and public humiliation and all the rest. Uh, and under that kind of strain, which he thinks is the result of God trying, uh, the devil trying to destroy his ministry, what's happening is the devil's setting him up for a trap. Now he's facing bankruptcy and public humiliation, but the public doesn't know that. And he's in a meeting one night in a big city in his healing ministry and God performs a spectacular miracle and heals an elderly lady who's almost completely lost her eyesight. And it's an astounding, spectacular miracle and nobody's more grateful or humble about it than John Trueheart. And the next morning, this woman who's quite wealthy, to show her gratitude uh, to God, she writes out a check for $5,000 and she wants it to go to the Lord's work because God has so blessed her, but she doesn't know where to give it. But she knows there are some good works and she figures, well, a minister ought to know the best place to give it. So she makes the check out to John Trueheart. And she says, Brother Trueheart, I want you to use this, minute, this money to send it where it'll do the most good. And I trust your judgment. But because she didn't know how to make it out, she made the check out to him. And Satan's snare has been neatly laid. So young John Trueheart begins to rationalize. Well, wasn't it his prayer that healed the woman? Wasn't his ministry as important as anyone else's? Now, he knows by what she said that the money is not really meant for him. She said, I want you to send this money where it'll do the most good. You know what ministries are most effective. So, so it's clear to him that it's not primarily a gift for him, although it's close enough to that that he can rationalize, you see. So what he does, finally, out of desperation, he justifies the fact that it was his prayers that healed her and everything else, so he deposits the money in his own account pays off some of his bills to stave off his own bankruptcy proceedings. 
And then immediately he's guilt-ridden because he sees that in a way he's embezzled some of God's money. And he's repentant, he asks God to forgive him, and he doesn't know what got into him and all this, and he wonders if his ministry will be taken away. But he stands up the next night and preaches with as much power as ever. Miracles still flow. But that doesn't really help matters at home. His wife's habits haven't changed, the bills mount up again, uh, and the whole situation uh, starts all over again. People at home try to warn him, John, take care of your family. No, I'm called of God to minister in the body of Christ. And uh, so he's facing bankruptcy again, tremendously burdened by these personal problems at home, but tremendously burdened for God's people. And he has a, a missionary vision. And one night, while even while he's facing this public, this bankruptcy thing at home, he gives a powerful sermon about his missionary vision. He wants to start a mission project down in Haiti, and he gives a special appeal for it, and $12,000 comes in. Now, his call or his vision for the work in Haiti is genuine, but he doesn't have any organization, he doesn't have any people to set it up, no way to dispense those funds, so he just puts it in the bank until the time comes they can set up the proper chance. But then facing him at home is this scandal which only money can take care of. And he begins to rationalize, well, nobody would ever know if he took a few of those $1,000 out of that 12000 to pay off his bills at home. And so Satan's snare sprung. And John Trueheart passes the line from being a true prophet to a false one, traveling all over the country, lifting huge missionary offerings, uh, diverting thousands of dollars into his own pocket to try to support a broken marriage and a failing home, uh, all under the pretense of uh, raising money for missions. Now, was his call to the ministry genuine? Yes. Were the miracles in his ministry genuine? Yes. Did he ever intend to become a false prophet? No. Nevertheless, he fell prey to Satan's snare. Here's another case. Uh, we call it in the book, uh, we name the man Randolph Abbott, Reverend Randolph Abbott, D.D., an older minister who has a successful ministry, a radio preacher in this big city where he preaches, but he's... Inwardly, he's disgruntled with his ministry because he's not moving in the things of God. He's hungry for more of God. He gets the baptism in the Holy Ghost, begins to preach with power. His church fires him for heresy. But uh, because he's been established as a radio preacher, he goes on an independent ministry and goes ahead and preaches independently and begins to preach a full gospel message, forms an organization to support him by, well, made up of some retired ministers and some elders out of his church who, who didn't want him fired, sets up his own charismatic ministry and begins to prosper greatly in his radio ministry, begins to teach and preach healing and deliverance over the radio. People begin to get saved and healed and delivered. He's begin to make records of his sermons and tapes and books. And he gets quite a prosperous thing going. And he tells his members of his board, he said, you know, I thought my ministry was over when I got fired, but I see God was just setting me free for a greater ministry. But... Reverend Randolph Abbott, like other people, have had problems. And one of his problems was that all of his life he'd had a struggle against sexual lust. Now, that doesn't mean he's evil or immoral. Many men and women have that struggle. And also, Abbott's wife had been a semi-invalid when he was in the pastorate, and so he was denied the normal sexual outlet in the normal marriage relationship. So he lived in a kind of a hellish kind of situation where he was terribly driven by this, but somehow he'd managed to stay... Uh, straight about it. But nevertheless, it was a constant struggle. And I deal literally with hundreds of men and ministers and women and young people who confess to the overpowering nature of that kind of struggle. 
Then his wife gets the baptism and is healed of her invalidism, heart condition, gets the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And he thinks because of that, that everything ought to return to normal, but I mean, she's healed, I should say. She's healed. She hasn't gotten the baptism yet. And he thinks because of her physical healing that they ought to be able to resume a, a natural marriage relationship, but she's not interested after all these years of invalidism. So he has this kind of frustration. His radio ministry is going great. He teaches a series on the home and family over the radio and begins to counsel. He does it effectively and begins to get a lot of opportunities to counsel with troubled people about their marriages. And he begins to counsel a, a very lovely young divorcee and the inevitable happens. He falls into adultery. He's heartbroken, all upset, apologizes to God, asks forgiveness, and of course God forgives him, wonders if his ministry is to be destroyed, but instead he continues to minister with great power and effectiveness. Now, he's forgiven and he's repentant about what's happened, except the woman won't let him alone. She begins to call him on the phone and pester him and to stay after him. And that kind of temptation, plus the frustration of home, where his wife is indifferent to his affections, sets up the trap where sooner or later he inevitably gives in to that thing and renews the affair and falls into habitual immorality. That's a part of the snare of Satan. Then his wife gets the baptism in the Holy Spirit and that revolutionizes her life and she sees where she's been wrong. Her love for her husband's rekindled and she wants to restore a normal home relationship. But, but this time he's so guilt-ridden and involved in this immorality that he can't do it. And she's all hurt and puzzled, even though she understands it's partly her fault. And she counsels with some of the members of his board and other ministers in town and uh, can't understand what's happened to him. And they confirm the fact that they suspect he's involved with another woman. She confronts him with it and said, uh, Randolph, let's move away from here. Break that off. It's partly my fault. I denied you all these years, but I want God to restore our marriage. Let's move to another city and start all over again. But this time, by this time, he's trapped. He won't do it. He won't break it off. He kicks his wife out of the house threatens to divorce her and wants to marry the other girl. Then the men on his board come and say, Randolph, you can't do that. It's unscriptural to divorce. There's no grounds for divorce. You've got to try to patch up your marriage, break this thing off with that girl. Uh, otherwise, we're going to have to uh, publicly reveal your indiscretions and take control of your ministry. And he says, it's my ministry, not yours. He fires the whole bunch, kicks them off the board, takes his work and moves to another town, divorces his wife, marries a new girl, sets up his program in another city. And the public at large doesn't know what he's, about his problems at home. Now, see, he's already fallen into the snare of a, of a false minister and still ministers with power. And then he begins to get new revelations about things God's doing in the end time. And this goes on, and he preaches with power and miracles and all the rest. And after a year or two, one of the men that's been on his board is surprised to see his lovely second wife come back uh, to the old town all brokenhearted and upset, seeking counsel. And she said, my husband, Randolph, has gotten new revelations about, uh, uh, that aren't scriptural about things in the end time. He's learned, he says he's been given a revelation about soulmates and that he and I are to live as brother and sister. And God has shown him there's three other women that he can be a soulmate to, and he's gotten sexually involved with them. And one of these women has come to me and openly boasted that she's pregnant by Randolph Abbott and he and her both believe that this is going to be the second coming of Christ and the new Messiah. Now outwardly this man is still preaching in public ministry. All right, now was his call to the ministry and his years of faithfulness in the ministry, were they genuine? Yes. Was his baptism in the Holy Spirit? Genuine? Yes. Were the miracles of healing? Genuine? Yes. Was his wife's healing? Genuine? Yes. And her baptism in the Holy Spirit? Genuine? Yes. Nevertheless, he fell into the snare of the false prophet and ends up a man in immoral ministry still deceiving much of the public across the country. Now, 
Both of these characters, John Trueheart and Randolph Abbott, D.D., are both fictitious characters. But let me tell you something. I built those stories around those two fictitious characters, and every illustration, every incident about either of their lives is a true illustration and a true incident that's taken place in a minister's life. And I could have given far, far more. My letters cross my desk practically every week about this kind of problem. I mentioned to you in the first session about getting this letter from a church, an elder in a church who said they had to church, had to fire their minister because he was a false prophet, that they had seven women in his congregation who were ready to swear out a complaint against him for propositioning them for perverted sex. And these kind of things come across my desk all the time. And it's that kind of problem that has prompted me to bring this kind of message. All right. Oh, my goodness. We're not going to have near enough time to do all I want to do. We've only got about another 15 minutes. But let's move on quite rapidly. This was why God's ministers fall. The answer is, what shall we do? We said in the beginning, God doesn't turn on the light to hinder but to help. And the scripture says, there's not anything hidden but shall be revealed, and that which is whispered in secret shall be shouted from the housetops. God doesn't turn on the light because he doesn't love us, but because he does. And he wants to restore the false prophet. He wants to protect the body of Christ, as we'll see as we go on. But there are the next two major things we want to talk about, and we'll cover part of it this time and the rest in the next session. There are some basic things that the body of Christ as a whole needs to do. And there's also a list of basic things that Christians individually, ministers and those who may be in ministry and just ordinary Christians, ought to measure themselves against. There are some principles, 15 of them, that I'm going to list tomorrow that the individual Christian and the individual minister or teacher or young seminarian ought to keep in mind. But there are some basic things that, uh, steps that the body of Christ itself can do to protect itself in this situation. And I'm just going to list here again. There's one, two, three, four, five of them. And each one of them we could give a whole message about. In fact, a couple of them I have a whole teaching on. But we'll just list them very uh, rapidly now. What shall we do? The number one is the recognition, we, we've been stressing this already, the recognition that a true minister and ministry is to be based not on miracles but on character. A second point is, and we've already developed that one so we don't talk too much more about it. A second point is, for the body of Christ, the principle of submission to spiritual authority. In 1 Thessalonians 5, chapter 5, the 12th, and I guess it's 13 verse, Paul says, well, let's read it. There are many other passages similar to it, but this one's in a, a particularly effective one. Verse 12, he says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. So Paul, what Paul is saying here is introducing this principle of authority and submission to authority is that every man needs to recognize and every woman that somebody is over them in the Lord. They're to be in submission to someone. This is all, there's a lot of lessons can be taught on this whole principle of spiritual authority. I recommend to you Watchman Nee's book by that title, Spiritual Authority, because Nee makes it plain, and it is true, that God is the ultimate source of all authority, but on earth he rules through delegated authority. Church authorities and civil authorities. In Romans 13, Paul says to us that every, let everyone be subject to the higher authority or the higher power. And he goes on and talks about kings and rulers and governments and tax collectors. That every Christian, 
Every Christian needs to recognize that even secular rulers and secular authorities are God's authorities over him for his own good. Paul says they are God's ministers to you for good. So the traffic cop, the policeman, the mayor, the governor, the government, the Congress, the tax collector, all of these are God's ministers over us for good. And in the same thing is true in the church, the elders and the men of God over us uh, are over us for our own good. And every one of us ought to be able to recognize, as Paul says, who is over us in the Lord. We beseech you, uh, brothers, he says, to, uh, to know them who labor among you, but who are over you in the Lord. They're a part of our fellowship, but in every fellowship and every group of Christians and every individual Christian needs to know who's his spiritual senior. Who's your shepherd? Who's the one that you're to be in submission to? Who's the one that stands in a position to correct you or to admonish you or to encourage you or to discipline you? And if we ever, most of the men who fall into the snare of the false prophet are rebels. Uh, Reverend Randolph Abbott, for example, these men on his board said, Randolph, you're going to have to cut it off with that young divorcee and reestablish your home with your wife or else we'll not be able to support your ministry. We'll have to expose what you're doing and shut down what you're doing. He says, nobody tells me what to do. I started this ministry. He fires the fellows, disbands his organization, divorces his wife, marries the other girl, goes into another place and sets the whole thing up. What do you call that? You call it a rebel a man who's not submitted to any kind of spiritual authority. And most of the men who are in fallen ministry today but who are still in ministry are men who are running from authority. They're in rebellion against authority. A third principle, the necessity of establishing the plurality of leadership, the danger of one-man ministries, and our country's replete with them now. doesn't mean that every work that's headed up by one man is a work of a false prophet. I don't mean to imply that. But I do mean that scripturally speaking, leadership is plural leadership. Even when we talk about elders in the New Testament, they were always spoken of in the plural. It's unscriptural for one single man to have the sole spiritual responsibility for a great work. Look back with me over in Numbers 11 at some of what happens in the ministry of Moses. Numbers 11, verses 16 and 17. Eleven sixteen, And the Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the, of the people uh, and officers over them, and bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. And I will come down and talk with thee there, and I will take of the Spirit which is upon thee, and shall put it upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not thyself alone. The divine principle of plurality of leadership. God was showing Moses, Moses, you cannot bear the burden of this people alone. I'll give you 70 other good men and put my spirit upon them, and together they will make decisions and judge and rule and govern with you so that the responsibility will be shared leadership. It isn't by chance that Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. Leadership is always shared leadership in the New Testament. And yet a lot of things that are in the church today are one-man ministries. And one of the ways you need to check and to be on guard about ministries that may be powerful and vital, see what kind of plurality of leadership they have, what kind of basis, what kind of, of a foundation there is under the work. Let me give you a kind of, I use this illustration in uh, True and False Prophets, a kind of a, 
uh, of graphic figure. Take a man who's called of God to perform a powerful ministry. We say he's just like a cube or a square. Uh, and God has anointed him, called him, blessed him, given him a revelation about what he, want, what he wants him to do. And he begins to fulfill that and be blessed. And the work begins to grow. The tendency oftentimes is for that one man to shoulder all that himself. He wants to guard his vision. He's jealous of it. Uh, and he's suspicious of other men. And he wants to be faithful to what God's calling him to do. And he gets more and more powerful, more and more involved. The work begins to grow, but all the decision making's his. And that work begins to grow like this. It's all based on this one man. And it grows into a great, powerful, heavy work, like an inverted pyramid. Well, I think you can see from the illustration that there is something architecturally and spiritually wrong with that kind of structure. You don't build a pyramid with the point down. It's basically unstable. And what happens is the bigger the work gets, the bigger the pyramid, the greater the weight that rests on one man. And God never intended one man to take that much weight alone. And sooner or later, I don't care how faithful he is, how disciplined he is, how careful he is, the weight will become so great he will crack under it. And when he cracks under it, he'll fall into deception. And from deception, it's only a short step to falling into sin and immorality and into the snare of the false prophet. And there are many wonderful works of God in this nation today who are like that. The men are not now false prophets, but they are under unreasonable loads of responsibility that God never intended them to bear alone. Now, what God told Moses was, Moses, you can't take all this by yourself. Get 70 other men and we'll share the load. So this is the principle. A man is given the vision and God, always God doesn't reveal things to committees. He reveals them to individuals. But then a man shares his vision and gathers leadership around him so that a group of men are sharing in the responsibility. And then as the work grows and becomes big and heavy, it becomes like a pyramid the other way with a broad, solid base under it, with many men responsible. And then if one man happens to fail or fall into deception or another man, at least the work is preserved. And through the sharing of the responsibility and the shared, uh, sharing of the load, men can counsel and check with one another. God never intended work to be, a uh, great work to be the responsibility of one man alone, even though one man was originally called to do it. Now, I grant you, in the past, certain works like this have developed and people have gotten away with it. But we're not responsible for what happened in the past, nor do we have the right to try to justify unscriptural things that were successful in the past to justify that today, our responsibility is to recognize what God is showing us in the Word and act accordingly. And I'll tell you, every ministry, great ministry based on one man is doomed to break up sooner or later because it's scripturally unsound. Plurality of leadership is a clear principle in the New Testament. And God never intended one man to shoulder the work by himself. A fourth point has to do with proper placement for women. I have old teaching about this, various aspects, and we won't get into it today. All we want to point out is uh, one scripture in 1 Timothy where Paul says, I do not suffer a woman to teach or usurp authority over a man. And there are many other scriptures that have to do with this. Let me just say in brief in summary that God, uh, scripturally, God has given women a very beautiful, important, but sheltered place in the scheme of things. There are many wonderful things that women scripturally are authorized to do. They can minister spiritual gifts in connection with ministering with their husbands. They can do anything the husband does, like the team of Priscilla and Aquila in the book of Acts. Uh, they can teach other women and children according to Titus. Uh, 
and they can minister hospitality like Phoebe that Paul commends. But there is one area where scripturally women are forbidden uh, to be, uh, to have place, and that basically is in a position of government or of authority. And it's for this reason that Paul says, I don't let a woman teach or usurp authority over a man. Uh, if a woman is in a position of teaching a man, uh, she takes on the masculine role of authority as teacher, and he has to submit to the feminine role of receiving the teaching. And this is a reversal of the roles God intended. God, by, and we could trace it out through the difference in the sexes and through the creation and a whole lot of other things, which I do in a lesson I have on, uh, introductory lesson on the Christian home and family. But all I'm saying is that God designed women for one kind of role and men for another kind of role, and by divine design, women are not designed for roles of leadership and decision-making in government except as they be subordinate to their husbands uh, who have that primarily responsibility. And any time a woman moves into that area, she gets into difficulty. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't some wonderful Christian women successfully operating ministries that scripturally cannot be justified. And I'm not saying that they're false prophets. What I'm saying is they're terribly exposed. They're in danger of becoming a false minister. And a lot of them do become. In fact, practically every place I travel across the country, this comes up about... Uh, in groups like this, there are women in places of ministry that are causing trouble to the body of Christ. Not because they intend to or want to. And oftentimes because men have abdicated their responsibility to be the leader. And so a woman in desperation moves in and takes over a man's role. This can happen in a home where a husband refuses to, to accept the spiritual leadership of the home and the woman out of desperation gets out into a situation that God never intended. I want to give just one illustration of this and then we'll move on. Uh, say scripturally women are forbidden positions of leadership and authority and anytime they get into that or want to get into that and begin to push for it then because they're doing it they're, they're unscriptural in what they're doing they cannot be protected by God they become exposed God everybody needs to be covered by authority and women especially as regards uh, authority or government they're to be under the protection of some male leadership a man came to my door one time in Florida to talk to me all broke up. We sat out by the car and talked, and he said, Brother Basham, I got a problem. He said, my wife and I were, have had a happy marriage for many years. We were saved in the same meeting. We got the baptism in the Holy Spirit in the same meeting, and we were growing in the Lord, and our children growing in the Lord. So he said, of course, I work, and I'm not able to read the Bible as much as my wife. She was going to all these meetings and learning more and more, and she began to get dissatisfied. She began to talk to me about wanting a ministry, a bigger ministry in the Lord. She wanted to serve the Lord more than she was able to serve it. And I said, honey, you're my wife and the mother of our children, and we have a Christian home, and this is your major responsibility, that's your ministry, God is, that's not enough, she said. And she began to read and pray and read her Bible, and she was going to these regular prayer meetings that were being held by a minister coming in from out of town, had to set up a series of them in various cities, and she's going every week to sit under this teaching, and she became more and more dissatisfied. She'd come home and tell her husband about what was going on. He said, I didn't mind her going because I couldn't go, I was working, but I wanted her to learn about the things of God, but I noticed how dissatisfied she was getting. And then I noticed she began to neglect the children in the house, and she'd stay in her room and pray and read the Bible and say she was seeking God for his will for her life and all this. And he said, I didn't know how bad it was until one night after the children were asleep, she said, honey, I've got to talk to you. And we sat down at the table, and she said, she said, God has shown me what my calling in life is. And he told me that, that, that you would not understand this, but that I was to tell you anyway. God has revealed to me his purpose for my life. He has shown me that his will for me is to become the associate Bible teacher for that man who comes in and ministers and to travel with him. And so I'm to divorce you and leave you and the children and join his ministry. And God said, that's the revelation for my life. And he told me you wouldn't understand 
but that I have to tell you anyway. And so I want a divorce. And by this time, this brother was saying his tears were coming down his cheeks. He said, Brother Basham, could that be God? He said, I don't want to stand in the way of my wife. And as he spoke, something got a hold of me. I got angry inside. I said, Brother, go home and be the spiritual leader in your own house. Wear the pants in your family. Be a man's man. Tell your wife to forget that nonsense about breaking up the home. God never breaks up the home. And what happened was this woman, when she began to seek a ministry that was unscriptural, fell into deception and began to hear a voice that was not God. And I told this brother, I said, if it'll make you any happier, get really mad and slap a lawsuit on that minister for alienation of affections or something. But anyway, assert your leadership in God. Now, I don't know how it ever came out. I never saw the man again. But this kind of thing is not an unusual example. In fact, some folks were sharing with me before this very session this morning their concern about a situation that's somewhat similar to this. All I'm saying is that any time a person begins to want to get into a role that is not scripturally authorized, they become subject to deception. And this is especially true about women because by nature, their sheltered nature, their subordinate nature, their feminine nature, it's easy for them to be deceived just like Eve was deceived. That's the reason Satan tempted her and not Adam was because she was the one that was subject to being beguiled and to being deceived and that's exactly what happened. Now if old Adam had been on the job he'd have been out there dealing with that himself. But our whole problem about men and women started with a reversal of roles with Eve moving into leadership and trying to deal with that slimy snake and Adam sitting back watching what she was doing say, go ahead dear you're doing fine. And it was when she took on a masculine role and Adam took on a feminine role that the whole thing blew up. I read somewhere in a book the other day that as Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, Adam turned to Eve and said, Dear, we are entering into a time of transition. (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, I think you can see the point I'm making, uh, the necessity of proper placement for women in leadership. Thank God there are many wonderful things scripturally they're authorized to do. But thank God that leadership scripturally is, upon, is to be upon men for whom God fashioned for that role. All right, a final principle, and then we'll be about ready to quit. The, the principle of endorsement, of endorsed ministries. This is all through the New Testament. It's not enough just to say, I'm called of God and I'm going to go. Somebody ought to be standing back of your ministry endorsing it. In Acts, uh, the 15th chapter, turn with me just briefly. Do you remember that story where uh, the Judaizers come trying to undo Paul and Barnabas' ministry and they have this big blow up. The Judaizers are the Jewish Christians who feel that Gentiles had to be circumcised and keep the law. And they come in and undermine Paul's ministry. And they, have a, and they arrive while Paul and Barnabas are there on this occasion, although they're, they chase Paul all over Asia and undermining his ministry. But here they have a clash uh, and they refer the controversy to the council in Jerusalem, the apostles and elders. And the Holy Spirit reveals his will there and it's put down in letters and Paul and Barnabas and others are going to take these letters back to the Gentile churches. And they do place some restrictions on the Gentiles in that they're not to eat meat sacrificed to idols and they're to abstain from immorality. But it also says they're not to be bound by the law, uh, other parts of the law. And in the letters, it's clear, the letters that they send back to these Gentile churches that the Judaizer Christians, for all of their zeal, were acting without endorsement. They had no business going out and trying to undermine Paul's ministry, even though they were acting, uh, uh, wanting to do the right thing. In verse 24 in Acts 15, in this letter, this is what the letter says that's going out. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your soul, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, 
to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, so forth, and then they gave the decision. All right, what they're saying in these letters to the Gentile churches is they recognize that the Judaizer Christians came out from the fellowship in Jerusalem. He said, these men we recognize, they came from us, and they've come and troubled you with some false teaching. But we did not give them authorization to do that, to whom we gave no such commandment. Therefore, don't pay any attention to what they did. And there's other places through the New Testament where this principle uh, is clear. When uh, Priscilla and Aquila ministered to Apollos and instructed him in the way of the Lord more perfectly, uh, then they sent him on to the next town of the brothers. They sent letters with him recommending his ministry to the brethren. And Paul, in his letters, recommends certain ministries and withdraws recognition from other ministries that have fallen into disrepute. We have this responsibility in the body of Christ to endorse ministries and to recognize ministries. And one way you can help in your helping with this problem is be hesitant and slow to have anybody in your midst that somebody doesn't endorse. If somebody comes in that you don't know about and wants to minister, they say, Brother, where are you from? Who can we check with? What group do you belong to? And if he says, I don't belong to anybody. I belong to the Lord. Praise God. Hallelujah. Nobody tells me what to do. I just minister the things of God. Well, then look out because he's a rebel. Now, he may not be a false prophet, but everybody needs to have somebody endorsing them, somebody answerable to. Jimmy Moore has somebody answerable that he's answerable to. I have people that I'm answerable to. It's not enough just to be, uh, to be invited to go or it's not enough just to go. You need to be sent. See, a ministry needs to be endorsed. Again, we'll say it, many of these false ministers are ministries that are without endorsement because an endorsed ministry is a proven ministry. And if a man doesn't measure up, his home life's not right, and there's nobody at home to vouch for him, then don't have him. Sometimes a lot of grief could have been avoided if good Christian people would just make one long-distance phone call to see uh, back in a brother's home area or to call some other man of God. I guess a month doesn't go by, but what, I don't get two or three letters or two or three phone calls from say, what about brother so-and-so? We've heard something about his ministry. What do you know about him? Well, thank God, in most cases, I can endorse him. If I know him, I know his ministry's proven, may have ministered with him. In some cases, I just don't know. I say, I don't know. I don't know anything about this man, but you better, I don't know any reason that he's anything wrong with him, but I just don't know him. Check with somebody who does. But every once in a while, I get phone calls or letters from people about somebody that I know is a false minister in immorality, in dishonesty, into heresy, and I have to say, frankly, even though it's never pleasant, I have to say, I cannot endorse that ministry, and I would not minister with that man, and I advise you not to have him. But I'd say, don't take my word for it. You check with...